Food delivery apps have changed how the restaurant world operates. After seven years of mobile food delivery, the volume of food ordered through these apps has become so large that entire restaurants can be sustained solely through the order flow that comes in from the apps. This raises the question as to why you even need an on-prem restaurant. A cloud kitchen is a large shared kitchen where food is prepared for virtual restaurants. These virtual restaurants exist only on mobile apps. There are no waiters. There are only the food delivery couriers who pick up the food from these warehouse-sized food preparation facilities. A virtual restaurant entrepreneur could open up multiple restaurants operated from the same cloud kitchen. The mobile app user might see multiple restaurant listings. There might be a pizza place, a cookie bakery, and a Thai food restaurant, when in fact all of them are operated by the same restaurateur. The world of virtual restaurants and cloud kitchens is very new, very interesting, and it's a very big market. Ashley Colpart is the founder of the Food Corridor, a system for cloud kitchen management. Ashley joins the show to talk about the dynamics of virtual restaurants and the cloud kitchen industry. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and a group of developers has created a hackathon called CodeVid19, which is a pandemic hackathon. The goal is to create solutions that help people manage and survive during the COVID-19 pandemic, and they're using the hackathon platform that I built called Find Collabs. So if you're interested in hacking on ideas related to COVID-19, you can go to codevid19.com, or you can go to findcollabs.com and enter into the hackathon there. There are projects that are looking for volunteers, and also there are volunteers looking for projects. Over the last few months, I've started hearing about Retool. Every business needs internal tools, but if we're being honest, I don't know of many engineers who really enjoy building internal tools. It can be hard to get engineering resources to build back-office applications, and it's definitely hard to get engineers excited about maintaining those back-office applications. Companies like DoorDash and Brex and Amazon use Retool to build custom internal tools faster. The idea is that internal tools mostly look the same. They're made out of tables and dropdowns and buttons and text inputs. Retool gives you a drag-and-drop interface so engineers can build these internal UIs in hours, not days. And they can spend more time building features that customers will see. Retool connects to any database and API. For example, if you want to pull in data from Postgres, you just write a SQL query. You drag a table onto the canvas. If you want to try out Retool, you can go to retool.com slash sedaily. That's R-E-T-O-O-L dot com slash sedaily. And you can even host Retool on-premise if you want to keep it ultra-secure. I've heard a lot of good things about Retool from engineers who I respect, so check it out at retool.com slash sedaily. Ashley, 
Ashley Colpart, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. There are a variety of ways that I can order food on my phone these days. I've got Uber Eats and DoorDash and Postmates. And these apps first came out six or seven years ago. And I was just ordering food from normal restaurants. A courier was picking up the food from the restaurant. But today, the market has matured and it's gotten more sophisticated. How has the world changed due to the fact that there is so much volume going through food delivery apps? I don't, I mean, I don't know if I even have the answer to that. It's like there's more on-demand couriers and workers that are able to kind of make their own hours, set their own hours and work when they feel like it. And there's more people that are able to, you know, get a pizza or a sandwich or sushi brought to them at any place in their community without having to leave their office or the park or wherever they are. And so it's more like it's a convenience economy and people are able to just get get what they need when they want it. And that's the biggest change. I think that's that's the society's feeling. Could you explain the term cloud kitchen? Sure. So like you mentioned in the in the question is, you know, people would typically restaurants would produce food for delivery, and it would be kind of coming directly out of their restaurant kitchen. But with the rise in delivery and the rise with demand in delivery, restaurants are feeling strapped and constrained by that rise, because most restaurants are not designed for delivery, they're designed for in restaurant dining. It's just a different model. And so The idea of a cloud kitchen is to really centralize the production of food producers so that it's easier for delivery drivers to pick these things up and deliver them direct to consumer. So a lot of the times the the larger companies are playing with data. They're seeing a large demand through these delivery apps for specific types of food, and they're able to cater to that demand by creating what they call virtual restaurant concepts that may exist only in the cloud. They may just be a a brand that exists only in the cloud that delivers food and or they could be a restaurant that needed to expand into delivery and so decided to rent a kitchen space off-site, off-premise from their restaurant. They keep the same brand, they optimize their menu for delivery, but they're doing that production in a large facility. Can you kind of think of a warehouse that has multiple kitchen units in it? And you can imagine multiple brands making multiple types of food under one roof. These kinds of giant industrial warehouse kitchens, where today there can be multiple virtual restaurants existing in them, Did these kinds of warehouse-sized kitchens exist before there were food delivery apps and the desire for these cloud kitchens? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the original version of this concept was the mall food court, where, you know, you could bring a family of five to the mall food court and, you know, your daughter wants a a hot dog and you want chicken tenders or Mexican food or, or whatever, and you're able to kind of get all of those places from one food court. It's a little similar to that, except for that the pickup option tends to not be existent in these in these facilities. So I would say that was like the first version of that. It's also funny, you know, having a new term coined by the industry. So the cloud kitchen or the ghost kitchen or, or you know, virtual restaurant, you know, those are like technical branded terms for something that's existed a long time, which is the idea of a commissary kitchen, which is just a centralized location for mass food production. And those have existed, you know, since we started having the necessity for licensed commercial spaces that are 
you know, licensed by the health department. Can you tell me about the business model of these warehouse kitchens? Sure. So there's there's a couple different models that are, you know, trying to gain some market traction right now. One would be the the warehouse model where there's again multiple brands under one roof, but they're renting out these spaces to an existing brand and the brand rents the space and access to the distribution channels and and technology just so they have a turnkey situation for which to sell this food as an extension of their existing brand. Another model that is emerging is the facility itself is an umbrella company for their own brands. So you might have kind of a a wing shop and a burrito place and a sushi restaurant, but they're all owned by the same kind of restaurant group or LLC that oversees the facility. And they're optimizing their menus and optimizing their production and menus based on the concepts that they have under that roof. Some of the food that I might order on from a food delivery app Some of it might come from a virtual restaurant that runs entirely out of these warehouse kitchens. When did we start to see virtual restaurants start to appear on these apps like Uber Eats? When did it start to to be the, the case that I'm not necessarily ordering from a restaurant? This is somewhat of a new phenomenon. This is kind of more in the last three to five years. I think New York City was the first place that it saw the rise in, in the ability to do this and to optimize for it. And since then, you know, as the VC money starts flowing in and the concept starts to gain traction within the business world, you start seeing them popping up kind of all over the place. The problem is, or, or a concern is to the consumer, it's difficult to tell where your food is coming from. And this is kind of at odds with the consumer demand of wanting at the same time to have more knowledge about where their food comes from. And so that disentanglement and not knowing, is this coming from an existing restaurant? Is this coming from a commissary kitchen? Is this coming from a cloud kitchen? Or frankly, is this coming from somebody's home kitchen where they're just producing it at home and then hopping on one of these delivery apps? It's kind of hard to tell. And we don't really know that there's a lot of looseness happening with it. So let's say I want to set up my own virtual restaurant today. So let's say I have an idea for a restaurant that serves exclusively toast. It serves cheese toast, cinnamon sugar toast, French toast, I want to get started immediately. I want to start as fast as I can today to start selling my toast. What's required to set up a virtual restaurant for me? So the first thing you'll need is a business license or an LLC to kind of operate legally. You then, as a producer, if you are going to be the one that's going to be preparing the food, you'll need to get a food handler card and be, you know, legally have the adequate food service training that your health department requires. You then need access to a licensed commercial kitchen space. And so an existing kitchen that is licensed to produce food, you could oftentimes folks would like rent commercial kitchen space from an existing restaurant that had time when it wasn't operating. Or you can use what's called a shared use kitchens where the business model is to rent out space. So commissary kitchens, shared use kitchens, kind of the same thing. But they allow you to rent hourly through monthly plans and then you can access that space. You'll then want to kind of optimize your menu and figure out where you're going to buy your food from. Have that food delivered to the kitchen and on hand so that when you are ready to operate, it's there. 
And then you, you know, hop on one of these sites and you create an account with uh, the delivery app so that you can post your menus and post your hours and then sit around and wait for folks to find you if you haven't, you know, put in a lot of the, the legwork to have built your brand up so that folks know who you are and what you are. So a lot of the value that these aggregators bring to a new brand that might be trying to gain traction is visibility to a broad base of consumers that are hungry. So when they're, you know, you're searching for, you know, something to eat, and I see, you know, your toast company, and I'm hungry, and I was craving toast, I can search for toast and and find you. And what kind of deal does my virtual restaurant make with the warehouse kitchen? So oftentimes those are going to be like long-term leases where they're leasing the space for their production. So there's usually a monthly lease. And then, you know, there's oftentimes a a lease or some sort of contract around the data and the access to the platforms as well. And what about with the food delivery apps? What kind of relationship do I have as a virtual restaurant with the food delivery app companies? I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think they're all changing. They're all trying to optimize that relationship. And so I think you're using a third-party application to mar- essentially market your your brand through their app. And then there's a percent of anything that kind of flows through that that you're paying to that app for them connecting you with the consumer demand. You run a company and you make software called The Food Corridor. This is software for shared kitchen management. Explain what your software does. Sure. So we are essentially an ERP for the shared kitchen industry. So as I mentioned earlier, the idea of a shared kitchen is not a new phenomenon. These types of kitchens have been operating for for decades based on the, the idea that in order to sell food to consumers, you need to produce it in a licensed commercial facility. Oftentimes, these can cost you know, over $50,000 to build on your own or outfit. And if you are just getting started as a food business or, or, or seasonal food business, it doesn't really make sense for you to, to pay for that type of capital and infrastructure. And so the idea of a shared space is much like the co-working space is that you share the cold storage, you share the freezer space, you share the docking, you share the dry storage, and then you're renting, you know, the facility and booking time in that kitchen when it's available and you operate during those times. So what our software does is kind of manages the back-end relationship between the owner of the kitchen and the food businesses that rent from them. So we essentially allow for scheduling and booking. We do compliance document management for managing the business license, the insurance, and the food handler card of all the, the renters. We also manage the billing and allow for monthly plans and added fees and storage so that they can manage that relationship and kind of get out of the office and back into the kitchen to support those food business and, and the businesses that are operating out of the facility. So the customer is the warehouse kitchen itself. Yeah, the customer is the the shared kitchen themselves. Yeah, the owner operator of the kitchen. Gage and Tyco are open source testing tools by ThoughtWorks to reliably test modern web applications. Gage is a test automation tool that makes it simple and easy to express tests in the language of your users. Gage supports specifications in Markdown, and these reusable specifications simplify code, which makes refactoring easier 
and less code means less time spent maintaining that code. Tyco is a node library to automate the browser. It creates highly readable and maintainable JavaScript tests. Tyco has a simple API. It has smart selectors and implicit weights that all work together to make browser automation reliable. Together, Gage and Tyco reduce the pain and increase the reliability of test automation. Gage and Tyco are free to use. You can head to gauge.org to know more. That's G-A-U-G-E dot O-R-G to learn about Gage and Tyco, the open source test automation tools from ThoughtWorks. And how did you get connected with all these different kitchens and how do they become your customers? That's a really great question. So I didn't come to this with wanting to like solve a a problem. I found a problem that was in need of solving. So my background's in food and food systems. And I was working on my PhD dissertation at Colorado State in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I was essentially researching underutilized assets in the food space. So with the desire of finding novel ways to connect underutilized assets with food producers to help support local food development and local food economies. And I landed on the shared use kitchen model at at this time when co-working was becoming more and more popular and a a more novel idea. And I was really kind of seeing that, you know, in order for a new food producer to, to gain traction and become, you know, a national brand, they needed to start in one of these places and they needed somewhere to start. And so that was a compelling story to me. So I ended up surveying 140 of these shared use kitchens across the country to really figure out who they were, why they do what they do, what their business model was, and just kind of what the state of the industry was. And in the survey, I started realizing trends across kitchens where their business models were all very similar, their operations were very similar, but they also had very similar pain points. And they were all just like craving solutions for a very kind of managing a multi-tenant situation can be pretty, you know, overwhelming. And many of them were overwhelmed. And many of them were hacking together other business solutions and other softwares that just were not specific to the industry. And so my original idea for the company was like an Airbnb for commercial kitchens is can I connect food entrepreneurs that need access to commercial space with these existing spaces and make that more of a marketplace for, for these kitchens. And as you probably know, and your, your listeners know, building a marketplace business is one of the hardest business models to, to figure out. So I just really started with the kitchen side and had them show me their business processes and what their needs were. I partnered with 13 of them, beta tested, built the software, iterated, and then, you know, took it from there. So we're now about four years old since those beginning times. So is your long-term goal still to do a marketplace kind of company? You know, it, it, it is. And it's it's funny how you start with one side and then you see that that side really needs that demand anyway. So a couple of years ago, we launched another site, our sister app called The Kitchen Door. So we have The Food Corridor, which is the ERP for shared kitchens. And then we have The Kitchen Door, which is where the food businesses can search and find commercial kitchens in their area. So we basically took 
all the kitchens that we know in our universe, clients and non-clients, and put them in a database so that people can find them. So what we're now doing is the number one legions site for finding shared use kitchens. And we're able to send those leads directly to, to our clients, as well as folks we want to become our clients. That's pretty interesting. So what are the gaps in making that two-sided marketplace work today? That's a really great question. That's actually one of the problems that we're, that we're looking to solve right now. So right now, you know, we have the back off office solution for, for the, the food corridor. We have 170 kitchens that are using that software and they're renting out to 9,000 food businesses. What's missing from a product standpoint is the connectivity between the kitchen door, the leads that come through the kitchen door and the actual back end software. So the software has like a embedded CRM or a CRM component to it where they manage clients. And what needs to happen, in my view, is a connectivity between the clients that are coming in through the kitchen door all the way through the business process of the kitchen so until they become a client and are activated and are managed within the software. So, you know, I we're kind of working backwards into that now and are able to kind of think about ways to create a more modularized product that services folks that only want leads but don't need the software yet. And over time, they may, you know, you send them enough leads over time, they start having the same pain points as these other kitchens. And then they need to graduate into using the software because it is, you know, we've essentially manufactured the pain point for them at that point. So if I understand correctly, the way that you are developing the market is you first have gotten the industrial kitchens on board with your ERP software that helps them manage things like licenses and oversee the the tenants who are in the industrial kitchens. And then over time, as you build up enough kitchens in your clientele, then you can, well, you've set up this other website called the the Kitchen Door and virtual restaurants that want to find the industrial kitchen space, they can log in and, and they can see the industrial kitchens that you have already onboarded into your ERP software, and then you can make the connection between them. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly right. With one caveat is that the Kitchen Door software is the, all the kitchens, that we know exists that are renting out space to food businesses. So preferred listings on our site are clients of the food corridor. And so we obviously want to promote them because they're our clients and it's it's advantageous for us to send leads to our clients. So we kind of give them that the preferred listing rankings and showing up first. But the whole world of kitchens that we know about can come to food corridor and create a listing for free. And that ends up being advantageous for us as well and interesting for us because we are the number one ranking you know, place to find shared kitchens. So all the search engines are, are, if you're searching for commercial kitchen space, you're more than likely going to find the kitchen door. It's going to rank. And so if you are a kitchen that doesn't use food corridor, never maybe heard of food corridor before, but you start marketing your kitchen by creating a listing on the kitchen door, then we find out that you are out there and that you maybe are a shared kitchen. We start sending you leads. And then over time, we build a relationship with you and say, hey, you know, we're sending you these leads and we hope that that's helpful. We also have this software that might be helpful. Would you like to take a look? So they end up kind of in our pipeline and in our community of, of shared kitchens. And 
we do a lot of other, you know, kind of thought leadership stuff around this too. We, we provide a ton of resources for folks that are interested in starting shared kitchens. We have a 160 page toolkit that folks can use to kind of get started. We sell an operations manual for kitchens that are just getting started that need to kind of have those operations running from the get go. And then we also facilitate an online community called the Network of Incubator and Commissary Kitchens, which is the largest network of of shared kitchens in the world. And we facilitate that group to kind of create a community around these folks because going back to a long time ago to my dissertation research, one of the open-ended questions I had asked these operators was, you know, is there anything else I need to know? And most of them used that opportunity to say, well, I wish there was a place we could go to learn from each other. And I wish I could ask other kitchen operators how they manage XYZ. And basically, they were craving a community of practice to kind of more formalize their business and be able to kind of create that industry expertise and and best practices. And so we also, you know, facilitate that online community for them. So, you know, we're very much a give first kind of company. We realize this is a a growing community and industry and, and by providing best practices and resources, connectivity and software, we're able to kind of help the the industry materialize. Can you tell me more about the life of a of a virtual restaurant? Like I don't know how much of that market you've seen, but I guess I'd like to know how quickly do they get started up and how quickly do they shut down and do they move between different kitchens? Are they A B testing their menus? I guess I'd just like to know what life is like as a virtual restaurateur. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I think it's a newer question to ask. And, you know, most of the food businesses that are operating out of our shared kitchens are chefs, caterers, food trucks, product manufacturers, beverage producers, all kinds of different food entrepreneurs that need access to these commercial spaces. The virtual restaurant, in essence, is a little bit more of a nuanced thing. So it can be like, for instance, a food truck that operates during, you know, the summer season and the spring season at, you know, places all around town. But then in the winter, you know, the events go away and and they may not, they still have brand recognition within the community, but they may not have, you know, a place to be parking it to have the foot traffic for folks to be coming by and eating their food from their food truck. And so the virtual restaurant could be an opportunity for them to extend their season extension and deliver from, you know, the facility itself that they're producing that food out of versus on demand from their truck. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And so if you're just going to, you know, take a virtual restaurant from that's an existing brand. So the existing brands tend to have better opportunities for success because they already have a fan base and a following and have built that rapport with their clients and their clients know what to expect. So if you're going to order from a brand that exists in your community that you've eaten at that restaurant before, and you're going to order that online, you know what you're going to get. If you're a virtual restaurant concept, that's just going to start, you know, is going to rent commercial kitchen space is going to do all those go through all those steps that I outlined earlier, and then just kind of turn on on a Friday night and see if you get orders, it's going to take you a lot longer to build that rapport and that following and that consistency with a clientele to find success. So there's a lot of the, you know, things at play there around visibility and connecting with clients, which, you know, 
a lot of existing brands are going to have a leg up for that. Can you give me more detail on what the software, the ERP software for these industrial kitchens does and how it works? Sure. So essentially, the software at its base is a scheduling software. So we allow the kitchen operator to create a multi-unit calendaring system where they may have 10 different kitchen units within a facility. So kitchen A, kitchen B, kitchen C, they build those calendars out. They can then add uh, reservable equipment. So oftentimes a specific type of business might need a Hobart mixer, which is a large industrial mixer that they may need for, for baking. And so they can book space A and then add a piece of reservable equipment for an additional charge for from nine to noon of their booking. And then they also can add their storage inventory. So oftentimes these kitchens are not only renting out hourly these, you know, the kitchen spaces, but they're also need to rent out storage capacity. So the the food businesses need places to store all of their cold, you know, all of their food for food safety reasons. So there's a dry storage component, there's a freezer component, there's a refrigerator component, and they're often renting out units of storage to those folks. So we're able to kind of do storage utilization and apply those at the client level to the renters. The often clients will be on monthly plans. So you put them on a monthly plan, they'll prepay for 10 hours in the kitchen, and then they'll book time on the calendar. And as the client books that time on the calendar, the system will, will track those hours. If they go over their hours, the system will automatically kick in a, you know, a, an overage rate for the remainder of those hours. And then we do a billing once a month. We bill all the clients or they can bill on demand through the system. So we're connected with Stripe and Stripe Connect for our payment processing and, and the client, the kitchens can actually just, you know, ha- be completely hands off as it pertains to collecting payments from their clients, which is super advantageous with them collecting their cash flows early on in, in the process. And then the client management side of it, you know, is a lot around notifications from the system, messages from the kitchen administrator to the clients within the app, as well as, you know, managing their documents. So making sure they're compliant in the kitchen. So we have a document compliance system where the food business uploads their business license, their insurance, their food handler card, contracts, things like that. And all of that is also stored at the client level and at the kitchen level for the administrator. So basically, it's kind of putting all of those things in one place so that they can manage everything when they log in versus everything being in all these different places. And you bootstrapped this business initially, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, going back, we beta tested with those 13 kitchens. And then, you know, we were like, is this something you want to buy? And they were like, yeah, we want to buy. So we gave them friend of the food corridor rates in the beginning. And yeah, the first monies into the company was from a little bit from my dad to kind of start my legal up up going and then $20,000 early on from savings. And then yeah, I brought on a technical co-founder to help me build out my vision because I'm not the technical side of the product. I'm the kind of thought leadership and vision side of it, the CEO. And so my technical co-founder helped me build kind of version one of this software. And, and basically that was all sweat equity until we got to a place that we had enough traction that we could raise a small seed round and kind of take it to the next level. And what's been your experience in in growing the product and evolving it as you collide with a with a market that's growing? Yeah, that's a really great question. Again, going back to what I said, like from a philosophical standpoint, like I started this company because I was 
interested in local food and help helping to support the local food economy. So our mission has always been to enable efficiency, growth and innovation in local food. And you know, when I started the company, it's like, commercial kitchens are not sexy. These are like, they're industrial places to produce food. And when I was first like raising my seed round, I was like telling people like, no, this is an important part of the, of the world and the market. And this is exciting. And people are kind of like, meh, it's not that exciting. But then you see, you know, these really large rebranded as ghost kitchens, cloud kitchens, virtual restaurants, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, the money starts pouring in and it becomes a little bit more sexy. And now, you know, we're kind of hitting up against that. But one of the things that we've always tried to do is be, you know, true to ourselves and what value we're bringing to these operators. And so, again, we have the community of practice that we provide resources to. Their success is our success. We're a very client-centric company, so we take feedback from from our, our users all the time. We integrate it into our product, and we're constantly iterating on the product to really kind of make sure that we're bringing value to them and that we're solving their pain points every day. And that, you know, they've really told us what they wanted. And from the get go, when I first, you know, beta tested with our clients, they were telling me, this is how we run things. This is how I need it to be designed. And then we kind of built those best practices for the industry. And so, you know, that that's kind of the biggest thing is we're trying to stay true to ourselves and know that these shared kitchens that have existed for a long time, you know, we're always part of this trend. They're, they're a multi-tenant situation renting out to food entrepreneurs and they're a, a diversified group of food entrepreneurs. So again, they're chefs, caterers, food trucks, product manufacturers. And, you know, we have 9,000 food businesses that have accounts on Food Corridor that are all, you know, supporting their local food economy. So in, in the end, we feel like we're, we're we're hitting our mission pretty well. Today's episode of Software Engineering Daily is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. And it integrates seamlessly with AWS so you can start monitoring EC2, RDS, ECS, and all of your other AWS services in minutes. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself by starting a free 14-day trial today. Listeners of this podcast will also receive a free Datadog t-shirt. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog to get that t-shirt. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog. The market is probably going to evolve in ways that none of us can anticipate, but we can make some guesses based on the actions of larger corporate players and people who have gotten funded significantly, such as the Cloud Kitchens company. What are you seeing in terms of the larger corporate players? We're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff. You know, the the larger corporate players are leveraging a lot of data. So, you know, the Cloud Kitchen folks born out of the Uber brand. And so there's a lot of information from the Uber Eats, you know, platforms that are helping to effectively identify 
trends and brands. So what's interesting is kind of backing into that or how it can get backed into. So if let's say on an Uber Eats application, there's a lot of people searching for Thai food in an area, but there is no one really to service that demand. What's able to happen is, you know, they're able to kind of reverse engineer the demand and say, hey, going to an existing restaurant saying, hey, you know, you you make pizza, but if you were to make Thai food out of the back of your kitchen and sell it on our app, we have demand for you. And that's a really interesting way to kind of like double down on the infrastructure that already exists for a restaurant that just wants to kind of have this concept that exists in the cloud and and double down on their potential sales for that night or that, that week. So that's really interesting. A lot of the larger shared kitchens are looking at existing brands because they realize that brand loyalty that and that brand development that's already occurred with existing consumer base is really valuable and that they can hit it, you know, get started from the get go without having to build new brands. And then, you know, in tandem with that are folks that are like, well, we'll just create this suite of brands and optimize for that. And then in the back of the house, they're able to use you know, production software and and applications to help really get the unit economics correct and and to really kind of make sure that they're spreading those ingredients and and purchasing across all of the different menu items that it might exist under one roof. So there's really a lot of kind of interesting efficiency gains and, and potential that are happening within these facilities. Yeah, I love the suite of brands idea, like the fact that maybe I've got not just my toast restaurant, but maybe I also make non bread and I've got, you know, French toast and these could all be different restaurants that could all be indexed under Uber Eats. Maybe it would cost me more money to have three or four different restaurants, but it's perhaps a better division than like if you go to one of those diners where you have like 12 pages of menu and it's like pastrami sandwich on one page, and then it's like Chinese food on the next page, and then it's Italian food. And we see that many options in front of you. Maybe it's all good, but you just don't trust any of it. Right. It's you like know, do it's... one thing well, right? Yeah. So the I like that the the apps, even though it's an illusion, you get the illusion that they are doing one thing well with each restaurant. Yeah, arguably. Yeah. I mean, time will tell. The customer is going to be the ones to, that will decide. In the end, if it doesn't taste good and if it's not appropriately priced, it won't work. I mean, the taste and the the price are always what customers are going to lead with. So if you don't get those two things right, it won't work. And that's the thing is like a lot of this food, at least that I've ordered from the companies, like the restaurants, I've, I've never seen this restaurant in person. This must be a virtual restaurant. Honestly, most of the virtual restaurants, maybe I haven't had that much, but it hasn't, I haven't been that impressed have you been blown away by any particular virtual restaurant food that you've had? <laughs> no, I get, I mean, I, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of with you on that. Like, sadly, like I, I'm also a foodie, so I'm, I can be a little bit more snobby about this, but you know, most of the time when I order takeout, it, you know, the quality is just not there. It's been, you know, sitting in someone's car. I I mean, if, you, if you're really going to talk about the people that the industry that has mastered food delivery, it's the pizza industry, 
right? Delivery of pizza. I mean, the, the whole pizza industry has been optimized for delivery. And they're the ones that have figured out the boxes and the, the bags to, to carry it and keeping that temperature right. And the, the distribution and the, the drivers and the routes that they take, like they have really, really dialed that in. That's not to say that can't start happening with other types of food, but there's just more variables, a lot more variables than just, you know, pizza and one type of food. And so optimizing for all those different variables and all those different cuisines and the quality of things needing to be crunchy or chewy or, you know, a specific temperature in order to, to have it such an, uh, you know, a magic moment with your food is really hard when you taking it from the kitchen all the way to somebody's home. So what's been the hardest part of building the business thus far? Oh, golly, that's a great question. I don't know. I think maybe it's like almost like a philosophical question. It's kind of like, am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right decisions? Am I taking advantage of the magic moment that's happening in, in the broader landscape of the trends that are happening right now? Am I doing right by my consumers and my clients? Am I hiring correctly? Like we've stayed pretty small and nimble as far as like our team's concerned. And I, I think it's mostly like an allocation of resources. And if I'm, I'm, am I pulling the right levers as it pertains to the business? So trusting myself, I think is, is always a hard thing to make sure that is a challenge. But, you know, when I... I get those moments where a client, you know, sends me an email and they're like, God, I don't know what we would do without you guys. Like you really understand our, what we're trying to do and you really care about our community and y'all are the best. Or you sent me two new leads this week and the, both of them worked out. And now we're at, you know, 70% capacity instead of 40 or, you know, we, we're really, you know, changing people's lives and helping people's businesses grow and sustain. And that's a really like fulfilling thing. So I think, you know, you kind of keep that as your as your North Star. And, you know, some days are not perfect. But when you get an email like that, it just reminds you why you do what you do. You're from Austin, right? Yeah. So I was born actually in the Bay Area and was raised in Austin, Texas from the time I was six. So I went to elementary, middle and high school in Austin. And then I kind of lived all over after that. I moved back to California, moved to Boston and then landed out here in Colorado. So yeah, I, I kind of grew up in central Texas. Right. Yeah. So I'm from Austin and maybe I'm I'm biased because I've just spent a lot of time in Austin, but Austin has a pretty unique food scene, right? Do, do you have any reflections on, and, and, and like, because I think Austin was kind of early to the whole food truck thing. And then you saw some restaurants that were successful enough as food trucks that they expanded into on-premises and they had Torchy's Tacos that really blew up and but then they like kind of grew too fast and then they had to contract and it seems like there's some interesting restaurant tour lessons to take away from Austin. Yeah, there absolutely are. And I I mean I'm I'm so jealous. I miss Austin so much every day because of the food scene in Austin. Like there's just it is one of the best food cities in the country for sure. And there's so much going on there. But yeah, the interesting point about I mean they South Congress and, and South Lamar had like those food truck kind of posts where there'd be like again, it's like a <laughs> 
<laughs> it's essentially like a mall food court, right? It's essentially like a virtual cloud kitchen with a bunch of brands under one place where consumers could go pick it up there. But, you know, it's, a, it's the same concept. It's like consumers want a variety of things and, and that that's compelling. It is interesting to see, you know, how the food truck is kind of the easiest form of starting a business. And essentially a virtual restaurant is a is a food truck without the truck. You know, it's just taking that facility out of the, the equation and being right next to the consumer. So adding the delivery for that last mile side of it. Yeah, a lot of things that have happened in Austin. We actually held our food incubation summit in Austin last October and we were focusing, it was the food incubation, so it was the community of shared kitchens coming together to talk about their businesses and learn from each other. And we focused on the CPG, emerging CPG movement happening in Central Texas and Austin. So there's tons of consumer food products coming out of Austin. And a lot of these larger kitchens are being built for the production of, the, of those businesses as well. There was a show we did a while ago about... There was some marketplace that I can't remember what it, what it was called, but it was a secondhand food market. Basically, like, you know, you make too much food and you can offer like food on a secondhand market, basically. And, you know, other people can come and pick it up. Does it surprise you at all that there hasn't been a highly developed secondhand food market? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> I mean, I like... Yeah, like a leftovers market. I mean, yeah, I mean that's like that's the hot bar basically. That's the hot bar at the at the supermarket. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't surprise me because it, it's still a really hard business. So, so the thing about food is it's perishable, right? It's perishable, and if it's not properly stored and transferred, it's dangerous. And so, there's a reason why food is highly regulated, and that's because it can become dangerous. So, if you're talking about secondhand food, and you're, you know, it's even another step removed and another level of complication of making sure that that food is the right quality, the right temperature, the right standards, all those things. But, you know, there are a lot of folks that are trying to address the food waste issue and overproduction of food. And then, you know, especially like with catering and things like that, the secondhand food market does capture some of that. I know a lot of local municipalities will be a little bit more forgiving, but also allow tax breaks to folks that donate that type of food to kind of like food banks and things like that. So there are those types of relationships that happen with the secondhand food market. But yeah, I'm, I'm not so surprised by that just because it's a hard problem to solve. How does the cloud kitchen market look in five years? <laughs> so, you know, I, it's going to be difficult to see. I, I do think that the centralized production of food is going to continue to be a trend. Investing in these facilities is not cheap. You know, the commercial equipment in them and all the technology that's going in is not going to be cheap. And so the pricing is going to have to really kind of be correct for the consumer in order for it to really kind of take off. What I kind of see happening is, you know, our kitchen clients, our shared kitchens, they tend to have a more diversified pool of users. So they might have some virtual restaurant concepts or some food trucks and things like that operating out of their facility. But in order for them to increase their percent utilization, they have to diversify their users. So they might have a baker, a bakers in the morning, and then they may have like a lunchtime caterer company that comes in. They might have a food delivery company in the afternoon. And then the evening, they might have a virtual restaurant that's selling pizza or hot wings, but they're really maximizing their kitchen because they have a variety of users in there. So I, I kind of see a more diversification of people accessing these facilities versus just the delivery brands. I also see a lot of potential for 
not just the food delivery, but the actual like packaging of that food. One of the things I don't like about delivery is the waste. Like it comes, everything's individually packaged. It's probably a lot of styrofoam, a lot of cardboard, plastic bag, utensils, all the things. And for a society that I think is kind of mentally moving towards less waste, I think there's going to be a lot of barrier resistance around that. And so how the industry solves for those things, I think could be really interesting is an interesting trend to watch. Yeah. And then what happens out, you know, in California with the labor laws and on-demand labors, I mean, a lot of the, this industry is predicated, built on the backs of on-demand workers and how we view labor in the next five years and what that looks like and will really be a, a huge factor into the success of these uh, kitchens, I believe. All right, Ashley, any other predictions about the future of food to close us off? Man, I wish I had the crystal ball. <laughs> it is an exciting time. It's it's cool to see innovation. It's cool to see tech kind of trying to take on food. But in the end, I think, you know, people will still want to come to the table together and enjoy a meal and that we shouldn't put too many of our eggs in one basket, for lack of a better analogy. A food analogy is a good one. But, you know, I think sitting down to dine and break bread will will never be anything that goes away. So... Ashley, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. <laughs>